Hello and welcome back to another episode of His Darker Materials, the podcast that goes episode by episode through the BBC HBO show based on Philip Pullman's series of books. I'm one of your hosts, Helen O'Hara, and with me as always is Dave Corgery. Hello, I'm the other host. <laughs> Hello. And today we're going to be discussing season three, episode seven. So if you have not seen this episode, please do go and watch it and come back to us. We will be discussing it, spoilers and all. We will also be having an interview with production designer Joel Collins, who will be joining us to discuss the entirety of the series. As ever, we're going to be avoiding spoilers for anything beyond this episode. For the one remaining episode, we will be talking to Joel about some end of season stuff. So do please tread warily in that interview if you haven't already seen the full episode all right dave what did you think oh my god wow i mean it's like this is <laughs> this is the big one right this is the explosive they, they're clearly going for that uh you know the the game of thrones penultimate episode approach right let's pack that's exactly what i was thinking yeah. yeah so game of thrones used to do that where the second last episode of the season would be the big one it would be the one where the big battle happens and then the last episode is like fallout from that and that does seem to be the way it works here. And I and I think it's a smart way to do it because I think it gives um, it gives the final episode the breathing room it needs because you know as having read the books we know that has a big emotional weight uh, and emotional impact and you can't really have big big battle 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 and then come down and then hit you with that so so I I, I do think this is the right approach but yeah it's a, it's a great episode it's fantastic I think they made the uh, they made it look like a a two hundred and fifty million dollar uh, movie you know f- for the most part like and I think uh, what um, Joel Collins and, and Russell Dodgson and his team have have sort of achieved here is uh, yeah they created a, a feeling of um, epic epicness i absolutely agree i mean they, they keep telling us in, in all these interviews that you've been listening to this season and you will hear it again that they know ne- they don't have any money and and compared to you know other shows with which they will be compared they have a budget about ten, one tenth a size but it is to everyone's credit that it really doesn't look and it doesn't feel it and in particular in this one where you literally have angels and witches and some dude in a weird helicopter fighting it out that it still feels pretty epic, you know? Um, so yeah, I I love this. I also love that we have had more of Mrs. Coulter and Lord Azrael in this season because it gave this episode a feeling of kind of a through line and, and a climax uh, in, for them. Because, you know, in the books, they very much come and go during that final story. And this actually, if anything, I think managed to make it feel a little bit smoother. I agree. And this is their episode, right? I, I would say Will and Lyra are, are very background in this. I think very this much is, uh, and clearly the next episode is going to be Will and Lyra's conclusion. But this, yeah, this is the uh, this is the end for Azrael and Mrs. Coulter. And it feels like the their fate, you know, of being fulfilled. And I guess we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, absolutely. Well, where should we start then? Do you want to deal with um, Will and Lyra first or do you want to start with the big stuff? Yeah, let's talk about Will and Lyra because they're relatively background here. They're almost like pawns in this. I mean, they don't actually participate in the battle, but I think they're key players nonetheless. You know, finally, Azrael is acknowledging the importance of Lyra and so he sends out uh, a gunway to find them um and we sort of it's Will and Lyra in this episode looking for their uh demons and uh, there's a lot of you know they, they get they meet a gunway 
uh, Serafina Pecola sends Kaiser to find their demons, and then you're just kind of waiting for them to be reunited. They are involved in a little battle with the cliff ghasts um, and a gunway uh, on the way, which is pretty good. A lot of sort of horror beats in this episode, isn't there? Real horror beats. I mean, those things are just not pleasant to look at. They're just not. And, and they kind of have that sort of carrion feeding the hyenas in the Lion King kind of a yeah, feel to them, don't they? But they do in the book as well. So I thought I thought that was that was pretty pretty well done. Um, but yeah, it was good, it was good to give them some kind of immediate peril in that sense that there was danger specifically to them uh, in the middle of all of this kind of craziness going on around them. I thought that was a nicely judged little little moment. And it, and it's kind of uh, you know a lot of the the battle here is that it's the best of all the previous sort of creatures, isn't it? You've got your cliff gas, you've got your specters, you know, it's the greatest hits. <laughs> they're, play, they're playing all the big, the, all the fan favourite numbers. I mean, it needed more armoured bears though, come on. That's true, yeah, yeah, a bit <laughs> lagging. I also like with the cliff gas, I like the sound design of their sort of, you know, whatever, that clicking or that sort of, you know, that horrifying thing that, that, you, that you hear when the soldiers are walking around. Of course, Serafina finds uh, their demons. They don't have a sort of a happy reunion, do they? No, no, we're sort of denied. Uh, in fact, the, the demons are sent through to a different world separately from Will and Lyra. It's becoming a bit of a bad habit, I think, at this point. And actually, Lyra's most significant interaction with the demon in this episode is with the monkey, is with Mrs. Coulter's monkey. Yes, which was really sad. It was really sad. And it was kind of, it was all the sadder because Lyra is still so suspicious and so wary. And we know, I think, a bit better than she does how much of a journey Mrs. Coulter and her monkey have been on. And she really doesn't. She has no reason to know any of that and is still just just short of hostile. She's just short of hostile enough that she senses something is up. But but I think she also sees something in the monkey's expression there's a there's a fear maybe or a, or a tenderness and and I think that and I think the fact that Lyra reached out to the to the monkey is is quite telling but was kind of denied you know with that that dust I mean again I can't unfortunately uh, Avengers Infinity War has has set the benchmark for people, things turning into dust now and, and emotional uh, <laughs> partings. But I can't help thinking about that. But um, Lyra, I don't feel so good. Yeah, it's very much that. <laughs> but I thought it was a, a it was a really good moment in a, in an episode of some you know really big moments. Yeah, really big. I mean, I, I guess just just to finish finish up with Will and Lyra, their their only other big contribution was almost unwitting. They end the authority, essentially, by cutting open the the sort of box cube thingy that protects him from even the slightest breath of air that might just blow him to bits. And they cut open the box to have a look and see what's inside. And oops, there goes, you know, the oldest angel to exist. And I, I, what, what I thought was interesting is that the show doesn't um, doesn't dwell on that. You don't get, uh, they, they chose not to have... Seraphina Peckler or one of the angels come along and say, well, that was the authority himself. And uh, now he has turned into dust and is one with the, you know, yeah. you know what I mean? I, thought, I, quite, I quite admired the restraint. Yeah, I think they, they understood that we got it and they didn't need to sort of explain it to anyone else. It was, it was strange though, because the first time I was watching the show, I was like, what's the big square thingy? You know, because it's not quite how it is described of course, in the book, it's described as a sort of palanquin. I think, like a like a you know walking bed type situation. So, I I had no idea what the box was. I was like, is that is that a weapon? Is that a thing? What was in the box? What's in the box? <laughs> Too soon. I'm still traumatized by that scene. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, it was it was a, an odd moment. 
It was a very odd moment. Yeah, and he uh, he didn't look well. He didn't look that, well. That, You're that, so right. That old authority. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, time for an interview now. So Helen got to catch up with Joel Collins. He's the production designer for his Dark Materials and one of the executive producers on the show. And they chatted all about how he and his team created the look of all the worlds of Philip Pullman's novels. Well, we are delighted to be joined again by uh, Joel Collins, production designer. Uh, how are you doing after finishing this? I think this must have been a pretty epic undertaking, especially for this season. Yes, I think the whole six years has been quite uh, an epic undertaking. And I think this season was one that we all hoped was coming when we started, because obviously we were we were coming uh, into a show that would uh, had already been attempted as a movie and and we were now attempting to to create this tv show so so i think when you when you when you are looking at something that um, that's got a life already in different ways because of the novels uh, and then a film uh, we were like right well we get to the end and obviously so so getting to this point is exhilarating uh, and has been exhausting Everyone who's been on that journey is, are all in different ways of, of, of mourning and enthusiasm and excitement and confusion and everything. Because it's just been, we've been clinging on to each other, f- fighting forward like a small kind of fighting unit in, um, to, to, uh, to get to this point. And we're all now like, it's like the war's ended and we're like, oh, what do we do now? You know. <laughs> Demob happy. <laughs> yeah, well, or confused, I'd say, because actually the 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 the, the amber spyglass is, in itself is such a complicated book. I'm very very privileged to have done it, to done all of it. I'm a, I'm an exec producer and designer of the whole thing, and I accidentally right in tw- I think it was in 2020 when we were developing season three, got quoted saying something like exec producer says season three will be bonkers or whatever it was, you know, like I, 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 something like that. Cause literally I was staring into the, the actual abyss going, how on earth are we going to do this? It's not just the term, the abyss, but you're actually staring into the abyss going, yeah. how are we doing this? <laughs> so what was the thing that kept you awake at night? Cause you know, talking to Jane and I think to a degree, Russell, they were very worried about the Malefa and and basically they credited your design with with figuring that out. But but was that something that was was your biggest concern or was it just everything this season? Was it all of these challenges, Land of the Dead, Kingdom of Heaven, you know, everything? I just, so, well, this too, it's really interesting because like uh, something's really, really bad if I'm kept up at night. And I know people use that term as being kept up at night. And obviously I, I what I do is I try and exhaust myself like a toddler throughout the day <laughs> so that I just... Literally, otherwise I would be kept up all night, like continuously mentally exhausting myself. So I, I'm quite physical as well as as well as uh, cerebral. So I basically, if if I'm not physical enough, I'll go running just enough to like pass out at the end of at the end of a day. So otherwise I'd be up all night. But actually, I was always just excited by the Malefa. I was, I've always been excited. I mean, I run towards complexity. Passing everyone running away from it, going like, well, no, what are you going to do? I'm like literally running into it, going, come on! Uh, part ignorance, part experience. That's 30 years of working, starting my career at Henson's, working on quite large-scale creature-based films where I watched The Impossible and was part of the teams of putting The Impossible on screen. Um, so because of that, all I know is without that bit in my life, I'll be bored senseless. 
So I, I, I never really saw them as the kind of the 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 net. The, the, I'm trying to look back. I think I think Heaven and Hell were much harder for me than the Malefa. I just love the idea of the Malefa. Having watched what Framestore and Russell could do with Yorick and the Golden Monkey and the Demons, it was like, okay, if we get this right, if we focus on the detail, and part of the Malefa is how it's described in the book, and then the other bit is how we want to give it to the audience. One of the things I've constantly been trying to do is, is, is interpret the book to make it both partly what the audience will think they saw in their head, but also not distracting. A huge amount of the visual side of this show is just hanging it like a kind of drape around these brilliant cast and, and the brilliant story and not making it become distracting. Everyone goes, oh, big new worlds, exciting worlds. No, they're plausible real worlds that you have to feel are just plausible real worlds, even if they're not ours. And I think the big mistake, the big mistake across all of this would have been to make more of those worlds than we should have done. And we did. So we always tried to like pull back, pull back. You know, that was my lesson when I made Black Mirror was just because you can doesn't mean you should. And I had to say that to everyone over seven years of that show, which was like, don't, it's future, but it doesn't matter. Or it's fantasy, but don't go there, you know. <laughs> And actually what, what I brought from my uh, experiences in this industry to, to this show was the idea of being cautious and not, not trying to do things that are distracting. So making choices that are simple creatively. So that applies to everything and the, and the Malefa doubly so because it had to be a plausible creature to the eye. You know what I mean? If it, it would become an alien if we did everything that was described in the book. When you put that all together, it could actually look so much like an alien that, that, that actually it would, it would distract the um, kind of audience away from actually what is an amazing story. I was just wondering if you had any kind of feedback or anything from Philip Pullman on the Malefa, because I know that he, he told Jane that the, the wheels were a hard line, like they had to, had to have wheels. Obviously, the first thing you'll do is go, hey, should we get, I mean, this wasn't just me. We will discuss, should we get rid of the wheels? Like, how does it work? Like, will it, will it be distracting? And what, what I did uh, early on with the ideas was to try everything. So you try you try the skeletal structures, you try the large claw like like nails that could go through a seed pod. You try so that it becomes like a wheel. Weirdly, they became a bit like the monkeys in Wizard of Oz. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> Nobody needs that. That was terrifying. Yeah, and actually, that's what I mean. One wrong move. And actually something that's supposed to be deeply emotionally resonating becomes either terrifying, funny, confusing, questioning. And the, and, and the issue about design is, is, is how can you remove all of those feelings and deliver what the author wants? And so a lot of it is, is also about what they feel. So the seed pods, what are they? Making them plausible. I, I think I picked up conkers and I was like playing with a conker going like... Oh, oh. You know this beautiful shine. They're kind of oily, and and uh, and I remember thinking if we if we expand up a conquer, what, how how would that work? And I kept thinking about these these little roller toys you used to have. Like they used to be plastic with a ball bearing in the middle, and they'd roll around. I don't know if yeah. you remember, remember them from the seventies. It sounds uh, familiar, yeah. Some, uh, yeah. Age, well, actually, probably I don't know if you're around the seventies, but they were like these things. You just play play kind of a a game with them. And um, so it was a bit like in discussions with Russell, uh, the physiology, how did we make them plausibly uh, use their seed pods to to travel, but without making it kind of 
uncanny or or disturbing or distracting and a lot of it was actually about them them doing repetitive things which actually tribal when you when you think about tribal uh, people and or us just our society huge amount of repetition in life so we then put all the kind of ideas of repetition of the things that they would do to be happy as a community or move forward as a community or live well within the environment and connect and use this oil and all of this and actually it would be them constantly from a childhood using these using these for play and then using them for travel and then using them to for, to be connected to the earth and so they 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 would have a pad that would have worn down to a point where they could move with them you know so it kind of uh, we, we were trying to always find a natural order of things to move it forward and again the key thing was one that didn't disturb an audience's kind of enjoyment of the story well i mean on on that note let's let's then talk about the sort of the, the land of the dead and, and the two stages of that because that all also felt to me very kind of stripped back and, and when you got into the sort of the you know across the, the lake into the true i guess land of the dead you know, there are, there are these echoes and elements of, of sort of Greek mythology, just in that there's harpies and it's, you know, dark and underground. But it didn't feel, it didn't feel slavish. It didn't feel overdone. So it was, again, I'm guessing you, you were keeping it quite stripped back and quite kind of almost minimalist. There's a really simple concept I put to this and it's almost silly. So I kind of almost feel terrified saying it, but I'll tell you anyway. To be a metaphor, I guess, for the way things are for our world right now, the way we live, um, I, I, I pushed forward the idea of not making a Bruegel town where they go and they get on a boat and then into this Lord of the Rings style Mordor, you know, environment where they're in the, the world of dead and rock. I suggested and thought maybe people just get recycled with their own detritus. So the entirety, so it's almost like when you're going into the land of the dead, they're being through a recycling plant. Now it's very subtle. You don't really think about it. But when I say it, you're like, oh, I see. And then they get on this barge and get dumped in a basically a huge dumping ground of the world's detritus that they've created. So if you look at those walls, they're moulded and made. So of, landfill. Uh, it's landfill. That's what the whole thing is. No rock. It's completely made of crap. The entirety of the land of the dead is made of the crap that we put on this earth that comes with us into death. I mean that work, but it even works with the themes of 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 the book. I mean, you know, there's a the whole thing, I think, in the back in Northern Lights about you know things that have been worked on by conscious beings have more dust on them. You know, they're, they're yeah. they are changed by their interaction with conscious beings, and so it, it that kind of feels like it makes sense. Yes, yeah, so Philip talks about environmental issues in in the in the book in the nineties. He's really really on top of the ice caps melting and you know, um, environmental issues about the bears having to try and migrate. And there's so much depth in the story he's telling and the kind of like resonance that you, it's almost impossible to put all of that on screen. So you do it invisibly. And, and if no one notices, that's fine. But if one in a hundred people notice, you're kind of like, well, that's great. I mean, I don't know if anyone really <laughs> does notice that, that but, 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 but that was the, the, everything had for me to have a, a conceptual resonance and a kind of depth to it for us to, go, if we're going to do very little, let's do very little with a lot of thought. That makes sense. And and the, the sort of the, 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 I don't know what we're calling it, the antechamber of the dead, that, that sort of, you know, long, dusty road to the 
processing center, I suppose. It's the it's the it's you're on the road to be recycled. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but so it's bad. like it's that kind of green draining kind of bureaucracy. It's sort of like almost Brazil kind of a, a tone to it at that point as well. Well, I guess that, that you you would imagine that he- heaven and hell has a um, uh, that in in he- hell there's a dystopia uh, of sorts, and it's a and, and and actually what this really is also you've got to always remember that that. The, the authority wants to control people, which is all very much this idea of the way it's laid out to feel, which is uh, organised control of, over people's, you know, pushing them through things, you know, uh, managing them and not giving them chances to think and to be autonomous and to put them into a place where their mind is slowly being wiped clear of any, it's, it's like um, being re-educated, I guess, uh, one could say. It's all constant little drops of, of information that is, is, is like I say, the, the curtain around the performance. And if you want, if you choose to look and think and work out why is it like that, why are these details there? What do they mean? There is always lots of conversation. There is a huge amount of logic from our end, creatively in design, in story connection, in uh, in fun. You know the the bits, the Easter eggs. The but but actually the idea is that you just feel something and you go with it. That's the win. The win is it. Are you feeling it and are you going with it? It, it? What you don't want is to be looking around, going, "I wonder why that's," or "This is what you know." Why is that? That's where we. That's where we lose because the audience are so distracted by this crazy work we've done that actually we're we're, we're not telling the story. So I wanted to ask as well about a, a few other sort of major, I guess, uh, locations and places. So Azrael's camp. There's there's a sort of really kind of fairly throwaway lines in the book about him building a fortress and a tower. And it's not entirely clear to me what that should be, what that should look like, where that is. And I thought it was a really interesting way of bringing that to life. You didn't go for like some gigantic uh, creation. You, you kept it a little bit more scrappy upstart level. The book takes leaps, which we we looked at. We, we did design a kind of Game of Thrones looking a fortress made of basalt that had all this stuff and and if you if you if you look at where he lands at the end of episode of season 1 he walks in to meet the angels in a basalt environment I come from Northern Ireland, so I, I grew up near the Giant's Causeway, so it, it, it was very familiar to me. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so in there we had um, we had this we had this basalt, which we were kind of thinking, do we, you know, is, is this the world? And actually, we. We knew that Azrael was going to go on a journey, and part of his environment for me there was there was there was uh, in conversation with Jane. We talked about how dark the season could be, tonally, emotionally, visually. Uh, we wanted to bring an uplift to the tone of Azrael's Republic. There's hope. It's not just if you walk in and it's all black stone. It's almost got doom written all over it. And what what you want is to get this feeling of hope, this inspiration. Again, it's. It's all about the kind of emotional hit as you're just diving into the story without overthinking it. And you said, "Oh, it's a scrappy startup." Well, that's that's good. Uh, that's good for me. That's good enough for us. Do you know what I mean? Because actually, what you don't want is this unrealistic level of kind of craziness that he's managed to create between then to here, which we we really debated. Because actually, we went we went there, we pulled back, we went back, we pulled back. I love the idea of Azrael being uh, environmentally conscious. He's using steel. He basically 
the tower was always adamant. Uh, it's described as the adamantine tower, the adamant tower, which is adamantine, which is a type of metal or material that that was used in mythology as chaining a dark angel. You know, it's very kind of you, you kind of dig in, you're like moving around. So we we made there's comment made about uh, the chamber uh, where Alabas is kept, which is basically made of adamantine which is a metal. So he's mined, he's gone to a place where he's mined a metal, built his tower out of a metal, which is a conductor. He has made it so that it will go back to earth when it's all over. So it will just rust, but it's the strongest metal, but it's also organic. There's so much logic that doesn't need to be told. Uh, On a very small personal level, I very much enjoyed how James McAvoy, former Professor Xavier, carefully said adamantine so it didn't sound like adamantium and uh, confuse any x-men fans out there but but yeah that 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 does make sense and and it does kind of um, again play into i guess a little bit of an environmental undercurrent i also wanted to ask about mrs carter's hideout was that a real place that you found because that that tiny hut on the seaside looked astonishing yes yeah, so, so 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 when we talked about so again again we we realized because this is all we were lock we were very closely with philip through our changes and our ideas I was kind of going through season three while we were doing season one and I'd already created what Chittigatsi was going to be in 2017. So I kind of was always quite far, far ahead of the curve. And I guess that was the, that was, there was that, these were the definitions of my role with Jane in 2017, working with the broad, trying to get this commissioned with the broadcasters, working from the beginning with her as a designer, but also as an exec producer to try and really think of the whole journey of this as a show choosing Russell Dodge and finding the best people to make this show, you know, really. And I've worked with those guys from Black Mirror. So I kind of brought all of the kind of thoughts on puppets and VFX and creatures and all that stuff. So I was always ahead of stuff. But what was interesting when we got to season three was we were looking and going, right, we're in another cave. And we spent a lot of time in kind of cavey environments in, in season two. And there are caves in season one. There are lots of rock. And she's in a kind of cave in the Himalayas, and then she, then we're in uh, as, as, as so if you if you actually broke it all out, the land of the dead could end up feeling like a cave. Mrs. Coulter could end up in a cave. Asriel could end up in a basalt fortress with an adamant adamant tower, and you're like all of it could end up looking like you're in different caves for every cast member. It's also a long way to go. Like it, it feels like so much of the rest of the story takes place. You know, basically Europe, more or less. Yeah, and and yeah. so suddenly you're going all the way across Asia. So at one point, I was like, "Is this actually not a cave, but like a, a family house that was once quite lovely and is now dilapidated?" So it, is it actually somewhere in China or in Asia that her family, you know, uh, owned this uh, house on a mountain that was beautiful but has fallen to disrepair, and the family have long since left it. There's no servants there, you know, the types of people they would have been. Or is it something of Asriel's that she knows of? Do you know what I mean? So it's very so in my brain, it was like, is it something that she's gone to that she knows that nobody else would think about because it's fallen long since to disrepair? And we 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 journeyed down that that line looking for houses, and we found some big houses on the coast. And we we moved it from the Himalayas through to Wales, and we thought, well, actually, let's play it, let's let's have a love letter to Wales, you know, let's let's enjoy this. And then Miglet, the location manager, who's Scottish and saw Wales with a big, a big new fresh eyes because she's from Scotland. So came and was like, Wales is new to me, you know. 
and she toured around and, and tried to find whatever was interesting. And we came across this um, chapel on MOD land. So it was like uh, not not that easy to get to, and you can visit it as a tourist, but it is a very small hermit hermit's chapel. Yeah, fell in love with it. And and we built the interior, obviously. We rebuilt it. Uh, we built this whole, you know, little cavernous stuff. It was a patchwork quilt of three environments and VFX and sets. So it was it was it wasn't just as simple as you can go there and it's what it is. But uh, but it, it is a real place called St Govan's Chapel. Yeah, really, really striking little, I guess, backdrop, especially for that scene with Father Gomez. Gorgeous. Then I also wanted to ask uh, about two, I, th- I think, perhaps related locations, which are the Magisterium, which I feel like we spend a lot more time in, in Geneva uh, this season. Maybe I'm misremembering the other And then the seasons. Kingdom of Heaven, which I, f- I felt had sort of, there, were, there was some kind of through line of style there, even though it was a completely different scale and obviously a completely different level of reality, I suppose. Yeah, so you've, you've, re- you've, pu- you've pointed at something that I think is really interesting. You've noticed something. You're obviously really beady, aren't you? Because you've noticed, you've, you've noticed <laughs> lots of things. There's a version of the Kingdom of Heaven. There's a version of like Metatron's Kingdom of Heaven, which people go, it's really boring. It's nice. You know, what is it? It's just, there's not, well, in my mind, it's like, what should it be? Why should that be a period of our time? Why should it represent a period of our world? Should our version and every other world's version of the church be a representation of it? So basically you look at the magisterium as much as you look at organized religion and authority so it could be the powers of of communism or the powers of of any authoritative figure which are huge halls huge they they use these weights of scale Ceausescu's palace you know they use this scale to denote power and it's almost like Metatron and and the, the the kingdom of heaven is in itself the inspiration behind everything that all the worlds have taken to do what they do rather than the other way around. The mistake would have been to make it look more detailed, like it fitted a period of time in anyone's world. What it needed to do was be such an awe-inspiring scale of bonkersness that it's hard to put your finger on, but if you wanted to interpret it, you could just see it as a the cathedral-like space. I mean, Philip always described it more like the halls of justice, you know, like it was halls and big corridors and a a place of authority, not a place of religion. But the question would be is if you were interpreting that as a place of authority and you would, if if anyone got a glimpse and were given a glimpse of what this place is in the the clouded mountain, uh, they might, you know, like hurriedly describe it to somebody else and draw it as this big thing that, you know. So across all the worlds is an interpretation of what is this humongous, authoritative, austere space. Russell was saying yesterday that you were very clear on how kind of sparse and simple it should be. Like he was, there were questions like, should Metatron have a chance? Oh, throw, throwing me under the bus. No, but it's, it's, I thought it was a great answer. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Why would Metatron have a chair, you know, was was the question. And and I thought that was that was fascinating. Why indeed would Metatron need a, need a chair or need a throne? When you know, why would he sit? Yeah, why, 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 why would he sit when actually he's an embodied? He he turns to a human form to be with humans, but actually works within a different realm. And why, in that realm, would he need mortal items? So, so, so for me, it's like okay, if you were to arrive there as like Mrs. Coulter did, and she was to head back down to Earth to say, in her world, I'm going to build a version of that. What would that look like? 
and over a thousand years, what would it end up looking like? You know? So I kind of worked my way back through the history of what the clouded mountain may have in what it may have how it may have influenced all of the worlds of humanity and how it needed to be to be the memory interpretation into everything else. Well then about the Magisterium, because a lot of what we see, I mean, kind of contrary to some of what we've just been saying, is the literal corridors of power. Like it's literally the sort of, you know, it's almost ants scurrying through an anthill kind of a feeling to a lot of the very, very enclosed, very kind of almost claustrophobic spaces. Well, yeah, I mean, that's obviously what what, what, we, what we try to do with Geneva is Geneva is the seat of history. There is a brutalist side to our magisterium and there is a chapel that was once on a mound. So conceptually, there is a chapel in the middle of, on a sit that would have been built on the mound with the painting of Adam and Eve within it. And that chapel, with all of its um, stonework carvings around it, is the, the basis for the building that's been surrounded and built up around it. So this huge prison-like environment has surrounded this very small chapel and built up around it over centuries and become the seat of power. Uh, so, so the the concept is if you if you watch, I don't know if you remember, he's he's in a chapel with Gomez. That chapel is very specific with a magisterium logo carved top down. So the whole thing is the shape of the magisterium logo extruded with an opening. So if you look, the top is the magisterium logo made carved in stone. It's literally a stone carved chapel extruded down to the ground, and inside is this beautiful paintings of the history of an apple off a tree and the serpent and everything. So if you stop to look at while they're having a chat at what's on the walls or whatever, you'll be like, oh, it's all there. <laughs> the story that he's terrified of coming true. It's kept behind, you know, sealed up as the prophecy. It's completely sealed by these metal gates. Now, again, it's a curtain in a theatre against these brilliant actors speaking words. Whether you're supposed to really have that rammed down your throat, well, no, you're not. You're supposed to, if you want to ask me and say, hey, what's that? I'll say, well, that's what it is. And the reason it, 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 you, you, the reason you might go, I kind of, I, I, you go with it is because there's enough depth and thought and theory in it to keep you moving forward and not thinking, well, that's a bit of a boring, weird space that doesn't have much history or, do you know what I mean? Just kind of go with it. There's these huge uh, sculptures on the walls which within them, I've got Dan McCullough, the producer, I've got myself, I've got Jane Tranter with a wolf demon, I've got Philip Pullman and Jack Thorne. I've carved everyone into these, these wall carvings. If you were to ever get a photograph, you'll see us all carved. It's my home of Easter eggs. I did it on Black Mirror with Black Museum. I curated Black Museum before I left Black Mirror. And so I put my whole history of, of, of 19 Black Mirrors into Black Museum and then went, I'm off. <laughs> So for me, this is a great Easter egg hunt. But 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 really, no. The 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 chapel was the the original item of worship. A brutalist chapel to talk about a prophecy, and around it becomes a seat of power that everyone goes to when you're. At the, and it's like the private chapel for the Father President. And that's, I think it's been brilliantly done throughout the show. I wanted to finally ask about really the, the the final scene, about getting that scene right, because it feels like it has this emotional welly and you've got to give the clear sense of, you know, there being a connection, but there also being that that wall between them, you know, of time passing. It feels like there's there's actually quite a lot going on for just one location in a garden. Yeah, well, and that's the book, isn't it? And actually, it's really interesting because we, we debated where we shot it 
so so what the what the, the the feeling of it was we debated the subtlety of what they were wearing the makeup the flowers around the, the bench that that kind of almost had to be the same which is weird but but one was new and one was old do you know what i mean because actually if you made a completely different bench it would like you'd, you'd be like Ugh! you know but you're in two different worlds how do you do that well you keep it simple this is their motto you know because actually the audience just want to zoom in on the emotional resonance of the moment. And if one's slightly higher because they're in a Victoriana bench and the other one's in a modern Oxford bench, I know it sounds really silly. How silly does that sound? But how wrong we could go by one step left or right. Do you know what I mean? But I think that's just, that works across the whole three seasons, which is at every point where, you know, just how... We, we've had a lot of fun. We've had a lot of craziness and we've had a lot of um, visual uh, enjoyment. But at all points, we were like, we could have gone much further. And I think it was an exercise in restraint of storytelling across everything. There's, if it, Just so you know, I mean, like we were taught about the demons by New Line. We, uh, we, we, we spoke with the people who made the movie. And they said that they they basically in the movie they made a big mistake. We were we worked this one out. It was full of demons, and they had to cut it because they did a test, and everyone just was like, ah! it was like a, it was like a menagerie. It's like Doctor Doolittle, you know. Like if everyone had a demon and everyone's like chatting away, it would be like utterly like in your face and like distracting. And we were like, well, that's useful because actually you can't afford. That. I think it cost them millions to remove things from screen that were really disturbing. That principle has gone across the whole of this show, which is how do we tell this story succinctly? How do we do justice to Philip's writing? How do we, it's constantly, you're, you're tightening up that sphere of, of focus. How do we not make the environments distracting, but just right with enough depth that people don't ask questions. And if they want to look, they can see it. And how do we make the demons just be where they need to be so that we're spending the money wise enough for them to be photo real. So you're kind of tightening and tightening and tightening till you get to the story which the writers have brilliantly managed to kind of like finesse into that pipe so that we deliver something simple and succinct and not distracting and not confusing. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's a crazy story. So how do you do that? So it's not. But I think I think that is pretty much what works in, in fantasy generally. Most of the fantasy, certainly live action, that I can think of it is a matter of keeping it keeping it simple and having having the depth. I mean, even something like Lord of the Rings, which is, you know, I think all the money in the world, um, you know, but even there, they're 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 keeping to these nine guys on a on a long walk, and we don't see that the lining of their cloaks is appropriate to their age and station, but apparently it was, you know. So it's just kind of giving them the depth to play it, giving us the depth, the sense that there's something there, but not overloading us with the entire history of Rohan, just leaving that to the the appendices. Well, I I, I do worry that we're in a world of like, if there's enough money it doesn't necessarily improve something. The mother of invention is in is in the crisis that you're facing, you know. I think we're in a world now where, yes, you can continuously chuck money at a project, but actually sometimes restraint can force you into making something more succinct. It's the creative bunch, which we were very lucky to really just have this amazing, under Jane, as, as I would call her, a showrunner really, under her brilliant guidance and kind of uh, experience and uh, creativity uh, there was phenomenal group that was placed with Jack Dan McCulloch myself and Russell and Caroline and, and you know it goes on this we were a very tight team and uh, and it was 
a lot of fun. Well, it's, it turned out brilliantly. And uh, well, congratulations on, on the three seasons. So, you know, if they if they come back to you in a couple of years and say, hey, you know, we thought we'd get back into it. We thought we'd make you know, the, the secret Commonwealth or whatever. Will you be will you be back on board? Uh, I am. All, well, I'm already still I'm still at Bad Wolf as an exec producer. Um, I'm, I've been a year completing the VFX with Russell and Jane and Dan uh, and also a year um, exec producing the new Doctor Who. So um, I am still in the same place. They know where you are, basically. They know, they, they've got, <laughs> I'm like, I'm, with, I'm like, oh, I'm, not, oh. I'm still there um, fighting the fight to uh, put brilliant work on screen. And, uh, and yeah, if there's more, of course. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, Joel Collins, thank you. Let's check in with uh, Asriel and the uh, the camp, and there's a sort of there's a lot of build up to the to the battle, right? So we, you 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 have to have Asriel, uh, well, finally acknowledging Lyra's importance. Um, and I thought there was a really good line I wrote down, which I liked. He said, "The only thing I was certain of was that I was born to change the world, and now it seems that destiny belongs." to someone else. And I think that's that's a really telling line about his character. And, and it comes later again when the um uh, when Metatron accuses him of resenting Lyra. There is a resentment there because his ego has tr- been his drive and that has been the thing, you know, he's put, put himself at the center of everything. And now he's realized and he's acknowledged that prophecies kind of do exist and he's not the chosen one. Yeah. I mean, with someone who has an ego the size of, you know, Mount Doom, that must be pretty hard <laughs> yeah. to to take on board. It's interesting, just as you're saying that, I was thinking of Dune. Um, obviously, I mostly am thinking of uh, Frank Herbert's classic novel. But in that, there's the whole thing about missing a generation as well, isn't there? There's the thing about, so the Kwisatz Haderach, the prophesized yeah. leader, is supposed to be someone in the next generation. And basically, kind of, Paul ends up semi-usurping that role and it's it's interesting i feel like, especially given that james mcavoy played leto atreides leto too oh my goodness there is some kind of grand unified theory i'm just coming up with right it. now of science fiction and fantasy based <laughs> on this entire thing there's an element of you know being born into the wrong generation being born at the wrong time or or just being you know fate not being what you thought it was that i think is is really interesting in his in his life and it's it's kind of encouraging that whatever journey Mrs. Coulter is on, it takes her a very long time to get there, but she ends up, you know, learning how to love, I think, basically, and learning how to love her daughter, at least. He kind of has the same journey in a much shorter space of time, and it seems to basically involve getting over himself as the main component. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And, and and I think they they choose to make that challenge literal, that confrontation, right? Because he, you know, he, he's... He does the Luke in the Dagobah cave thing and faces off against himself, mm. you know, his own his own demon, so to speak. And and I think that's a really interesting approach. I think it's it, it's a it's unfortunate that it's still and maybe this is telling about Azrael that it still has to end in in a fist fight <laughs> because that's how he deals with everything. You know, I was just gonna I, I, he's finally presented with God or the Creator or the, the whoever's the imposter of that position is, and he's like, "Let's let's have at you, <laughs> let's do this." <laughs> uh, yeah, and it, it is interesting. He he believes and he says to Mrs. Coulter basically, you know, we're going to win with physicality. Like, that's how we're going to win. These things have no mass to them. They have no power over us. They're just pure spirit. Therefore, we can beat them essentially with fisticuffs, <laughs> as you say. <laughs> and so I think it does, you know, it does kind of 
prove that he wasn't wrong about everything. He was right about a whole lot of things. Um, it does come down to fisticuffs, and he does manage to uh, to get it done. I guess it's it's just not all it's it's not all that clever. I guess yeah. But but I guess there there is a whole bomb, and then we get you know he's he he, he explains you know there's Chekhov's bomb at the beginning of this episode where he explains to Mrs. Coulter that the mumbo jumbo big energy bomb which will will release and they've set the pieces up for later it's you know under the table i it took me so long to get my head around exactly what was going on there and then i was like well duh yeah so they're basically hanging a trap conductors of something or other in the abyss that will somehow do a thing that makes the holy city the holy city you know the city fall but it took me a little while to get my head around what the heck was happening I was a bit slow. And I still I still haven't had my head around it. And, and I'm okay with that because all I really need to know is, yeah, science, mumbo jumbo, bomb, let's do it. <laughs> Blow them up. I mean, are you now treating science the way some people treat religion, Dave? Is that what's happening here? Science, <laughs> yeah, yeah, mumbo well, jumbo, kind of, bomb, yeah. let's do it. Do, do, any, do any of us really understand science? <laughs> and, and actually, I think that's the tagline for uh, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. I, oh my God, I think it is. Yeah, but I'll, I'm yeah. going to be busy seeing Barbie, so I can't, uh, can't get into it. Anyway. Science, mumbo jumbo, bomb. <laughs> so, you know, so yeah, I, we've, we've skipped ahead a bit, but there's, a, there's also a good, uh, there's another good moment earlier on which, with Azriel's speech. Which is a classic sort of, you know, call call to arms speech. But I think McAvoy's great. Um, has a lot of good lines. You know, we are we are free. You know, you always need to have that refrain at the end with that everyone can repeat. Yeah, it's very Braveheart. Which I mean, he's Scottish. You know, he's got to appreciate that. Um, <laughs> yeah. But also, the death is no longer an end, but a journey back to life. That's that's a good line. That's very good. Yeah. Today, life confronts death. So yeah. Um, and it was reminiscent of. Um, Another great speech this year in Andor, which I liked that, you know, one way out, we are free. One way you know, out. You, you've got to have, if you can have a three word refrain in mm-hmm. your speech that it gets everyone chanting. I mean, that's, that's good speech, right? That's good. That is good. So one way out, we are free, you know, thanks to Lyra, whatever it takes. Yeah, yes, yes, we <laughs> yes, can. Yes, we can. <laughs> it, is, it is nice to see, you know, for all his faults, Azrael getting a kind of leadership moment and getting to see a little bit his sway over large numbers uh, in, in that sense. Because, you know, we've mostly seen him persuading people one-on-one and making his case one-on-one to people. And it was kind of nice seeing him sort of address the troops en masse there. And it, and it shows his, you know, his charisma and influence. And that's that's his power. And there's a lot of talk about um, Mrs. Coulter's power. The angel tells her, you know, her power is that that she's able to separate from her from her demon, right? I forget the the, the words that. Uh, yeah, she has got an extraordinary power to suppress the best of yourself. That's it. Yeah. So, the, so which we've seen her do, you know, throughout the course of the show with her relationship with her demon, and that that is the thing that allowed her in season two to defeat the the specters, right? Which we see again here. Yeah. Now that was a fascinating scene because I was still a little bit like, I think when it happened in season two, I sort of felt like, okay. I understand, it feels right that she can do that. I don't understand how she's doing it, but I kind of, I buy it on some level. And and here I was a little bit more like, do I buy it on some, like, does it make sense? <laughs> and, and honestly, I'm still not sure. But there is that line in the book, isn't it, that the demons, that the spectres fled from her, I think. So, it, you know, it, it's it's not that it's new. I just, I just never quite understood 
where it came from beyond her being a badass. But maybe that's all we need. I mean, she's got that cool sky captain in the world of tomorrow jacket going on. You know, right, great she has, outfit. I mean, in a show with an amazing array of outfits, particularly for her, she has never looked cooler than she did this episode. It's real. Yeah, it's real like Indiana Jones vibes, isn't it? And I, and I love that she did this sort of X-Men thing with oh. her hands, you know, push, push yeah. it out. I mean, you, you have, have to, to do you that. have to. Um, then they used to get like you know yoga teachers and dance teachers in to teach them how to cast spells and Harry Potter and things like that. I wonder if they had something similar. Is that right? Oh yeah, yeah. I didn't know they, that. they had a, an actual yeah, yeah. Sp- uh, spell casting coach for the cast of Harry Potter. Yeah, or the other thing you do with you, you, you put your your fingers on your temples and you go. Well, surely, surely McAvoy could teach her that one. That would be easy. Yeah, he's got that down pat. He's got that locked down. It was an interesting scene that that one of her and Zafania just because. It showed her looking for answers openly from someone, being, I think, slightly more revealing of herself than she usually is. Perhaps because she th- she knew that Zafania would understand and see through her in some way. And to go from that to then full-on attempting to manipulate Metatron, I thought was was quite interesting. <laughs> you know, so she, she has some kind of trust or openness in that first one, and then layers trust and openness so so cleverly in her in her own kind of battle with Metatron where she's sort of trying the obvious route of oh I just want to follow you I think you're great and then almost double and triple and quadruple bluffing him within that and sort of revealing layers that he expects to see in her well that's her and that's her other superpower isn't it you know to the 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 ability to lie and and manipulate uh, and yeah I, li- I like how you've put it she's presented as layers and an onion so it's like the obvious first one is it's like even metatron's like yeah obviously what's what does he say you're a cesspit of moral filth i love that <laughs> you wish to serve no one but yourself what i love about it is like she's so convincing in those moments mrs coulter that even even I, as an audience member, I was like, "Is she telling the truth? Like, is she tempted by this offer? Does she?" And 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 it's kind of like a lot of her words. And I think maybe this is the sort of climax for her character is that she. I think she might be telling the truth, right? She kind of she loves Lyra, and I hate that I love her, and she makes me feel weak. And so, so I think I think she is kind of tapped into the truth and made it seem like. That is leading her towards his course of action, when in reality, yeah, she's going to pull the rug out at the very last minute. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think that's exactly. I mean, and look, Ruth Wilson is fantastic. I think the writing is fantastic in this scene, but it and and of course, you know, it comes from Philip Pullman's character. It's it's all working together, but it is exactly that. It's her showing exactly as much of the truth as is needed to sell the overall lie that she's on his side. You know, and and. And just kind of selectively reveal just the right amount to get through. I mean, you know, much of what she tells him is the truth. Much of what she says in front of Azriel with with Metatron is the truth. It's just not the whole truth. It's not nothing but the truth. And I think that's, you know, that's the kind <laughs> yeah. of grey area here. That's what works so well for her. Because she is, you know, Metatron says she's capable of such betrayal and she absolutely is and they both know that everybody knows that and that's why you know Azrael has to doubt for a second he'd be mad not to so oh I, I just thought she was good 
I thought just thought it was so good. How how did you like seeing Metatron in real life? Alex Hassel is the actor, yeah. right? And we I we I just watched Violent Night the the other yeah. the other week, and uh, I was like, where do I know him from? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, he's yeah. kind of he's kind of uh, without giving anything away, he's kind of a wuss in Violent Night. I, I think it's fair to say he was also in um, uh, the tragedy of Macbeth with Denzel Washington. What a couple of years ago now, I thought he was fantastic. He plays Ross, if memory serves, and that is not a role that has ever leapt out at me before, or ever made any impression on me really and this time I was like that guy's really good so um, yeah I, I kind of I see where they went for him I think he has that sort of intelligence and that kind of cool reserve not so much in Violent Night which if people haven't seen it is a very fun Santa Claus movie <laughs> if you if you watch the tragedy of Macbeth you can really see some of that kind of you know self-contained self-composed kind of energy that he brings here to Metatron. Yeah, he's he's really somebody to watch. Also, I'd be remiss to not plug your other podcast, Bah Humbug, which you talk about, Violent Night, uh, at length. And they, we did not plan this. We didn't, listeners. No. <laughs> I just, I, no, I did not. Did I do that, that okay? That was Helen? wonderful, thank you. Yeah, the check will be in the post. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just as you, just as you wrote. <laughs> well, I thought his performance was excellent. Yeah, and he's kind of like otherworldly and kind of just creepy. Um, but I liked, I liked when he's like trying to read her like live like he's almost seeing into her brain or her her soul and he's like i see shame love regret what is this and and it's it, it is like as you said it's her she is being honest but she's not showing him the whole thing and he's trying to catch yeah. up like he's what i love that he this you know the nominally the leader of the entire universe is like one step behind Mrs. Coulter. She's that good. And yeah. and like, let's be fair with him. I feel like his consciousness is somewhat divided. I'm assuming he has the power to essentially direct, you know, pseudo Lord Azrael at the same time. So he's having a fist fight downstairs, presumably at the same time, getting quite a few, <laughs> yeah, I have yeah, to yeah. say, Glaswegian headbutts in there as well. And then he's also presumably head of the Red Army, if you will, outside fighting you know, he's at least some oh, got some yeah, part of, of his brain presumably keeping an eye on them as well. I I would like to think, you know, if, otherwise, what's the point of being an angel? But even so, yeah, she she absolutely leaves him in the dust. I don't think he has the capacity to understand the layers that she has and the complexity that she has, because she is quite unlike anything he's really encountered. I think in a weird way, he's sheltered um, from people like her. And that's quite a cool thought. I'm I'm now obsessed with the thought of him, like there's another version of him, like uh, doing his taxes. <laughs> and there's another version, like just reading a book. There's another guy binge, binging a TV show. And it's just Look, like, you have to multitask um, these days. Otherwise, how do you get everything done? You know. And then there's, it, it all sort of uh, culminates in uh, the big, you know, big explosion. I like, I like that the golden monkey gets a big. Yeah, I thought that was really, you know, he, he's basically the trigger man, right? He's he's the one who, who flips the sweat switch and, and rocks the whole kingdom. But he does so because the knife is used, because the window's opened and Metatron is suddenly like, oh shit, they're here and is about to go nuclear on somebody. So it like it's that moment, it, they leave it until the last possible instant to send their attack. So the monkey runs for the switch, the demons go through. And then Azrael and Mrs. Coulter like launch themselves at him. And and it isn't just enough that it isn't just enough for the two of them. It takes Stel Maria kind of reappearing in a demon ex machina sense to to kind of push him over the edge, quite literally. And I, well, I like that he was kind of, that's uh, he's been defeated by the soul, right? His soul or the representation of the soul, which is kind of that's what the battle was kind of all about. 
I really liked how they just reveled in the slow motion in the in the fall here. It did seem like they were falling for a long time. I, I thought of that Bill and Ted bogus journey <laughs> moment where they, <laughs> where they start playing 20 questions. <laughs> and then they remember and start yelling at you and start screaming again. It, yeah. it was a little bit that way. But I think, you you know, you still had the moment when the, when the demons disappeared, you kind of knew. I think it's all over. It is now kind of a moment. And then that, that ends the, the battle up above. I thought the battle, we haven't really talked about it specifically, but it was kind of well done, you know, just to see this tiny little intention craft going out to face a giant city all on its own. I mean, cities should be aware if, if one dude in a, in a little tiny thing comes out and calls on you to surrender, like it's, it's going to be a bad day for you. Like, that's just the way it is. You know? <laughs> yeah. We've all seen all of yeah. the TV shows and movies where this happens. It never ends well for the city. Just just open the gates. Just open yeah. the gates. Come on. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah so he's, he's up there on his own. Cue the giant red hordes of heaven. And then even when the witches fly up with him and the, and the, the blue angels, thank you so much for color coding, coding the angels. Really helpful. I, re- I really appreciated <laughs> that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but even then, they're, they're this sort of like swarm of gnats, like absolutely dwarfed by the others. It looks like a sort of Pac-Man maneuver at one point with the, with the red angels just engulfing them. Yes. They did a, yeah, they did a great job of uh, expressing the odds visually. What a, what big a battle it was, and he even says like and kind of what his demon says something like I'm glad that we're not the the chosen ones in this moment, <laughs> right? It's not all about us. They did you know a great job of making the it seem big without showing you too much. I think they were very sensible with it. they showed you just enough of the battle to let your kind of mind fill in the rest, right? Because they don't dwell too much on it. We don't spend a lot of time in in the trenches, so to speak. Uh, but the other scene that we did get, which I liked, was. Um, well, we get two other moments in the battle. There's the that scene with the specters attacking the soldiers, um, and that's very much done, you know, like a horror movie. And then the other bit I liked was the uh, the soldiers hearing Metatron's voice and that uh, that that temptation, and that's because that's really powerful, you know, that 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 promise of heaven and eternal life. And am I on the right side? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and we we see it be effective. Yeah, that was that was phenomenal. Just being able to reach your enemy firsthand in the middle of battle and just kind of turn them from their course is extraordinary. I thought that was really, really well done. The specters in the camp, that was full on horror movie stuff. That was absolutely terrifying. I mean, they're just a terrifying concept um, to have your soul kind of wink out of existence. But, you know, I think, I think what they do is essentially what Philip Pullman did. I think they've been very much led by the book here. There is a big battle that happens and he gives you just enough of it to make you think as you're reading the book, oh my God, this is the most awesome thing ever. But he doesn't actually say very much about it at all. Like we're talking a couple of pages max, you know? So I think it was kind of the same effect here and it, and it worked to the, in the same way. It gives us those big moments, those almost kind of comic book splash page moments of the, you know, it's, it's Captain America versus Thanos, right? You know, it's a kind of this similar scale. And then the battle doesn't end up going Thanos's way. Spoiler there for Avengers Endgame for the three people who haven't seen it. Um, but yeah, it's. I thought that was really um, cleverly done. And we will be back to talk about the final episode after three seasons. It's all been building to this one. Are you excited after that finale? I am actually, because I mean, it's, it's funny because this feels like a finale in a way, right? And the, the series almost leaves it like that. But I think we know having read the book that there's some real big heartbreaking stuff to come and so i I'm, i don't know if i am quite ready <laughs> because the end of the book you know sort of sticks with you 
All right, so that's it for this episode of His Darker Materials. Thanks for joining us, and we will be back for the grand finale next time. See you then. His Darker Materials is a stripped media production. Our producer and editor is Maddie Searle. All our music was composed by John Dix. Our artwork was created by Sam Gilby. Our executive producers are Kobe Amanaka and Tom Wally. Our hosts are Helen O'Hara and myself, Dave Corkery. A big thank you to Ian Johnson at IJPR, to Bad Wolf at the BBC, and to all our guests for taking the time to chat to us. If you want to chat to us, you can do it at producers at stripped.media. You just heard a stripped media production.